This is hell. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. Music is a an unique expression of human emotion accompanied by harmony, melody, rhythm. Music strives to be an artistic form of beauty capable of sharing a feeling, a feeling you can only feel through music. Whether it's religious or revolutionary, reverential or radical, music can communicate our deepest sentiments from unquestioning love to, yes, even violent hatred. Music is a cultural universal. It plays a key role in what is the human condition and essential of human existence. Music is art, but music during our current state of capitalism has become something else. Music is a business that has become an industry, but now that music industry has taken songs to another level, to the level of commodification, now every song is run as if it is its own business. Each and every song you know is now vulnerable to becoming a commodity. Music is no longer made to relate to our world and our feelings, but as investments funded by shareholders whose goal is to have that song they invested in played as much and as often as possible in as many platforms as they can find. In so doing, the value of their investment increases and the music we hear all suddenly starts sounding the same. A homogenous milieu of generic hooks good for selling products and nothing else. And if you are a new musician just starting out adventuring, into new forms of music, music that actually challenges that homogeneity. Well, good luck, because there will be no room for you in a world of music dominated by Wall Street. Instead, we will live with tunes that scream nostalgically for a time before pandemics and climate change, allowing us to live in the false reality where there are no consequences consequences for our planet-destroying actions. So what happens when the market weaponizes music against us, further exacerbating inequality? Well, Stunting our creative imagination, we will find out in a few minutes when we talk to writer Rich Woodall, who posted the Baffler article, Mass Hypnosis, a new crop of investors would like you to keep vanilla ice on infinite repeat. Rich is a writer interested in digital culture, music, movies, and the derangement of late capitalist political economy. Follow Rich on Twitter at Rich Woodall underscore at Rich Woodall underscore. And thanks to listener Sebastian Vipper. I think, for sharing Rich's work with us and suggesting we have him on the show. Thank you, Sebastian. I really appreciate it. Remember, if you have any guest or topic suggestions, send them to us. We'll share them with other listeners on air. And if we have your guest suggestion on the show, we'll thank you personally, like we are doing today with Sebastian. Thanks for the tip, Sebastian. Here at This Is Hell, we don't just preach direct democracy we at least attempt to practice it. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing Monday. It's Monday, so it must be Jess Lipka. Jess, how was your weekend? It was good. Pretty quiet. Um, just, I'm, I'm reading Capital. I just started it, mm. so <laughs> I'm doing that. Well, that's fun, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, Hadas Thier is doing these YouTube videos on, I think that's her, on uh, Capital. She's like doing these little okay. like one minute videos every day on Capital. I'll send you a, a link to it. And yeah, the book that I, the book I left over there, that's for you. If you want to just look through it, you don't have to read or anything, but just figure out if it's a good guest or not. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah. Anything else you want to mention about last weekend? Anything new? Nothing new about you? No. Same <laughs> boxing, same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, for the very first time, I had stir fried rice with kimchi. And I'm never going to have stir-fried rice without kimchi in it again. It was absolutely amazing. I became obsessed with the early 19th century or 20th century playograph baseball scoreboards, which were huge, manually operated, and look a lot like the interface you get online when you're following a game live on Major League Baseball's own website. But what really got me, these things are kind of like Wrigley Field scoreboards, but, you know, only about 20 feet tall. And they would be in public places, sometimes outdoors, sometimes indoors, often in bars. But what really got me excited about the playograph is the kid they would hire to read the telegraph ticker tape to the crowd as they watched the scoreboard change. Before radio, these were the first play-by-play sportscasters, but more like town criers. I found that fascinating. I also was reminded of how Lenin, going back to Russia, was an imperial plot by the Kaiser, so there would be no German Eastern Front in the First World War, so communism was just a German imperial plot. I saw the uh, awesome public service announcement on First Nations 
uh, television about Thanksgiving being a complete myth to erase genocide, and we should instead celebrate a huge meal with family on that day in recognition of Native American heritage. Oh, and because of what we'll be talking about with Rich Woodall in a moment, I now know why that sellout DJ Khaled's stupid, stupid 2017 song about selling dime bags, Major Bag Alert, is stuck in my head and is seemingly everywhere I go. F DJ Khaled, F Wendy's, and F Hypnosis. And before I left my house, I realized rats got in our garbage on our back porch, and when I get home, I'll be doing the glamorous work of picking up rat-rejected garbage. More importantly than any of that, Jess, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? (laughs) Real nice. What are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? So far, this. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we have to have... Your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Jess will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, the question from hell is, what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? What are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell. And Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is meat. (laughs) Gross. According to the Healthline article, the 23 best hangover foods, meat, and other high-protein foods may help your body better handle a hangover. According to the studies, alcohol and amino acid transport in the human small intestine and inhibitory effects of alcohol on intestinal amino acid transport in vivo and in vitro. Alcohol prevents your body from absorbing certain amino acids. In fact, chronic alcohol consumption can lead to amino acid deficiencies. Such deficiencies can lead to decreased immunity, digestive problems, depression, fertility issues, lower mental alertness, and many other health issues. Your body breaks down protein into amino acids, making it a good choice during a hangover. 3 ounces, or 85 grams, of beef have close to 25 grams of protein, while the same amount of chicken breast packs 13 grams of protein. That makes this week's Hangover Cure protein, the protein you get from meat. Meat. That's so gross. That's not, that's like the last thing I, I mean, I'm hungover. I'm like, not like, I really need a big bowl of meat right now. It just doesn't sound. <laughs> yeah, wait, it's too heavy. For yeah, sure. Exactly. So not only do we actually practice what we preach when it comes to direct democracy, we also practice the anti-capitalism that so many of our guests promote. And as you know, Putting people before profits turns out to be a really dumb business model. It's a horrible business model. If you want to help out our horrible business model of putting you ahead of actually making money, you can go to thisishell.com and click on support. Find all the ways to help out your friends here at Completely Listener Supported This Is Hell. One way you can contribute is by becoming a subscriber to the weekly This Is Hell Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This podcast at the same place shortly after. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash thisishell, become a subscriber, and you will get immediate access to over 150 Patreon podcasts. It's like an entire extra year of This Is Hell with monologues by me and classic interviews that you cannot find anywhere else online. On last Friday's Patreon podcast, it was my week in hell when I share how the entire week of hell affected me, what my takeaway was from the four hours of hell last week. And for me, it was a week of considering the case of interests v. values, which we seem to be trying in our show a lot. When we spoke with DeVarian Baldwin, he explained how the defunding of universities changed the values of higher education to one of their own interests, which has had devastating effects on the surrounding community and their neighbors, including heavily funded funding their own police forces, which have little public oversight, while having jurisdiction beyond and off campus. Andrew Basevich reminded us how President Biden's foreign policy, like all foreign policies since Pearl Harbor, was attacked, put business interests and the interests of empire over any alleged democratic values. Kurt Guyette described how the deadly Flint water crisis happened because democratic values were undermined and decisions were made by unelected autocratic leaders. Finally, last week, Ben Ehrenreich dissected the Biden climate change plan, which insists that the only way to fight global global warming is by making it a profitable job-creating enterprise. Yep, the market that caused climate change must save us from global warming, and there is 
no alternative, according to the Biden plan. Meanwhile, on Patreon, we also played an interview from December 2004 when we spoke with former State Department security officer and investigator Clayton Swisher, author of the then-just-published book The Truth About Camp David, the untold story about the collapse of the Middle East peace process. Clayton worked with the late Yasser Arafat at Camp David during those that uh, Arab-Israeli summit back in 2000. You know, the peace talks were where supposedly the U.S. and Israel made a generous offer to the Palestinians, which the Palestinians then rejected, leading to the end of the Oslo peace process, which was actually working toward Palestinian self-determination and peace with Israel. Turns out the generous offer wasn't so generous after all, but that's not how the media tells the story to this day. But you only can hear my review of what I got out of last week's hell and Clayton telling us what really happened at Camp David by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Listen to our exclusive Patreon podcast every Friday live at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell shortly after. Thanks to our newest subscriber on Patreon. Thanks, Jeff H. Really appreciate you signing up over the weekend. Coming up, the commodification of music and every song becoming its own business. We'll also have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? What are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? And we'll have Rotten History, this week in Rotten History, as well as what's happening for the rest of this week here at This Is Hell. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell. Music is so important to the human condition that it is even thought of as sacred in that it should be venerated and held with the highest respect and reverence, at times insisting on its listeners to stand or sit or kneel or pray or dance. So what happens when the commodification of everything during this latest stage of capitalism, what happens when the market finally turns every song into an asset, making each tune a business, here to help us understand why we are headed to and in many ways already living in a future accompanied by an endless soundtrack of nothing but nostalgic music. Joining us today, writer Rich Woodall posted the Baffler article, Mass Hypnosis, a new crop of investors would like you to keep vanilla ice on infinite repeat. Welcome to This Is Hell, Rich. Hi, hi. Thanks for having me. You can follow Rich on Twitter at Rich Woodall underscore where he is a Barry Manilow futures trader. How's that working out for you so far, Rich? Uh, pretty slow so far, but I've got a, uh, I've got, I've got, I've got big hopes for uh, sort of 10, 15 years time when the, the new, the new generation of Barry Manilow fans ages into their, uh, uh, into their destiny. Yeah, I'm waiting for Miley Cyrus to do a whole album of covers of uh, Barry Manilow songs. That's going to be. Oh, great. it's coming. <laughs> Thanks to listener Sebastian Vipa for turning us on to Rich's work and suggesting we have Rich on the show. Rich writes about tech, politics, music, movies, games, capitalism, and living through terminal crises. Again, you can follow Rich on Twitter at richwoodall underscore. So you describe how you first heard about hypnosis from a friend of yours who spent a long afternoon late last year being chased around the internet by Miley Cyrus, specifically her cover of Blondie's Heart of Glass. He laughed at it at first, but as Miley returned for the third, fourth, and fifth go-round on YouTube's Next Up, he began to feel like the joke was on him when ads for the song appeared on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit. The amusement gave way to panic. It seemed that no matter where he fled, Miley Cyrus would follow him. So what was going on? A little frantic Googling, yielding an intriguing discovery. The rights to Heart of Glass, as well as the other 196 songs in Blondie's catalog, had just been purchased by an organization calling itself Hypnosis Songs Fund Limited. So, Rich, does Hypnosis purchase discographies, then aggressively distribute the song in order to stimulate purchase of what is now, you know, Hypnosis's music? And if so, is that a good deal for bands like Blondie? I think that's the first place I want to start. Is this good a good deal for musicians? Um, well, it depends, uh, which musicians you're looking at really. Um, I mean, from Blondie's perspective, uh, in raw financial terms, you could argue it's a pretty good deal. Um, uh, you know, I don't want to, um, uh, you know, cast any aspersions about Blondie, but I, I feel like they're probably, you know, coming towards the, the twilight of their, um, 
their kind of uh, artistic trajectory. Um, uh, not likely to be releasing too much uh, new music. Um, and perhaps, uh, you know, considering what we've all been through in the last year or so, uh, not, not too keen about the idea of touring. So, um, you know, from their perspective, it's, it's kind of uh, uh, one last uh, big payday. Um, the, you know, the downside of it from their point of view is that they no longer control these songs. Um, you know, they've signed over the right to, uh, uh, to decide um, how and where these songs are used uh, uh, to, to hypnosis. And, you know, perhaps, uh, perhaps they're, they're, they're perfectly happy with um, having Miley Cyrus cover them. In, in fact, I've actually heard that there might be a, a, a Debbie Harry, Miley Cyrus uh, duet uh, in the works, which would be wonderful, of course. Um, but, but, you know, who knows what uh, hypnosis have, have planned for that uh, intellectual property uh, down the line. And you write how Hypnosis was founded in 2018 by former Sanctuary Records executive <clears throat> Merck Mercurialis and Nile Rogers from Chic. Hypnosis is a UK-based investment fund that treats songs as financial assets. This means raising capital to buy the rights to songs from the people who wrote them, then doing whatever it takes to increase the value of said songs for their owners, in this case the shareholders of Hypnosis, many of whom are some of the UK's biggest asset management firms. So... <sighs> Is this kind of making music, making art a financial asset, is this new in any way? How is this different from the way music profits were generated in the past? Well, I mean, it's part of a, um, a much uh, longer story in the, the history of the music industry. And I, I, I'd really recommend anyone who's interested to check out the, um, the, the Penny Fractions blog, which is... Um, uh, uh, you know, the author of which is, is far more informed than I am about the, the kind of history of the music industry. Um, but we, we've seen a change in the last couple of decades, which uh, I think um, uh, kind of goes back to the, the sort of crisis of profitability in the music industry um, around the turn of the century, um, which is often kind of presented as um, being driven by uh, a digital music piracy. Um, you know, so people no longer paying for music because they were all downloading it off Napster or what have you, um, which is a, a bit of a, a misnomer, to be honest. Um, it's much more to do with a, a kind of a, a, a much more fundamental crisis in, in, in how record companies were, were making their money and the, the collapse of their old business model based around uh, uh, selling grotesquely overpriced CD albums um, and them not having a plan for how to make uh, money from uh, digital music um, uh, and they they used the uh, the sort of uh, um, kind of moral panic around uh, uh, piracy to help uh, sort of steer the direction of the, uh, the the music economy which which emerged sort of after after 2000 um, uh, and it, it so this this sort of new musical economy has been characterized by the kind of consolidation of power around uh, three uh, sort of big mega corporations: uh, Universal, uh, Warner, and, and Sony. Um, and in, these are sort of three kind of gargantuan uh, uh, behemoths who are, who are the product of a of a series of mergers, um, which has left them, you know, sitting on an, an incredible. Uh, um, uh, sort of bank of, of assets, you know, the last sort of 70 uh, uh, years of, of recorded music. Um, uh, and, you know, as we're seeing in, in, in other spheres like film, um, you know, we're reaching a point in our culture where the, the holders of this IP are, are looking at the risks, you know, the financial risks involved with trying to produce uh, new uh, 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 intellectual property versus trying to kind of monetize what they've already got um, and uh, making the kind of rational capitalist calculation that the, the, the latter is, is, is a smart way to go. Um, so that's the broader trend and, and hypnosis is, is really um, kind of uh, the latest sort of iteration of that. Um, the other aspect, of course, is, is, is the, the digitization of the music economy, which has um, turned all of these old songs 
into new revenue streams because you know every time a uh, you know whereas when you're listening to songs on CD, you know you don't you don't pay the you don't pay the rights holder again every time you play the CD. But every time a song is streamed, that's a you know that's a that's an additional uh, revenue stream going to the rights holders. Um, so that alongside of a whole load of other kind of factors relating to the digitization of music has, has created these conditions where um, uh, looking to kind of monetize um, uh, the uh, kind of old music IP is, is, is an incredibly lucrative um, business. So was this kind of consolidation of music rights, was that inevitable? Is this simply a function of our current form of capitalism that whatever the commodity ownership consolidates and it's just now it's happening to music uh i mean it's certainly uh it's certainly a trend that we've seen across various different sectors of of uh the kind of neoliberal uh um uh, capitalist economy and I, I really do see it as um as you know one aspect of the sort of general trend you know since the 1970s away from uh, uh production and towards um uh, towards finance um uh you know is the sort of uh, return of for investment on on um kind of production and manufacturing falls um you know money moves uh, uh increasingly towards um uh kind of finance based uh, activities um you know it's happened throughout the economy it's happened in various different aspects of the uh the kind of culture industries like film for instance and and it's it's happened in music as well so what happens to the music that is not yet a financial asset when a song owned by hypnosis is treated like a business? How does hypnosis being in, uh, you know, creating music as asset affect non-financial asset music? Do they get, are they like more vulnerable to being pushed out of the market? What happens when you're, it's you against hypnosis? Um, well, I mean, in a sense, um, uh, all uh, certainly all music that's um, uh, produced through the kind of major label system uh, is is already uh, a kind of a financial asset. Um, it's just that hypnosis has taken a particular um, uh, a particular strategy um, towards kind of getting in on this market. Um, the 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 distinction is a little technical. I, I don't want to uh, tax the patience of our listeners too much, but the, I think it it's probably worth understanding the the difference between um, uh, master rights, which um, uh, relate to um, the recorded piece of music, um, and the, these are typically owned by the the record company, and publishing rights, which uh, uh, refer to the um, uh, to the, the kind of IP, the sort of music and, and lyrics, uh, which are, are, are typically owned by um, uh, publishing companies um, uh, and uh, songwriters, um, and it's uh, it's these latter uh, uh, rights that um, uh, hypnosis is is interested in in kind of buying up and, and commoditizing, um, uh, as you know. Um, Musicians historically have, have, have not been, uh, um, uh, you know, particularly interested in uh, um, uh, in you know seeking these sort of financialized revenues from their uh, from their musical rights. So that's that's what that's kind of what's going on. So, are older musics are older musicians when they are cashing in with a group like Hypnosis? Are they? ruining music for younger audience audiences by allowing their music to become financial assets does that have an impact on the younger musicians um well for uh for younger audiences i think it's uh it's absolutely horrendous um i mean i'm sure you've you heard about the big uh, uh bob dylan um uh, deal which happened a couple of months ago um uh selling his entire catalog to uh to universal um well i you know i i was uh just on youtube the other day and i saw a a, a budweiser advert with um uh, uh blowing in the wind on it um and you know i just think what a you know what a monstrous way to be uh, introduced to that you know that 
that iconic song if that was the first time you ever heard it um uh you know uh in this context you know than shilling you this uh, terrible american beer um uh so you know i think in that in that sense it's a you know it's a real act of kind of uh, uh cultural vandalism um you also quote Mirkiriadis, the uh, owner of Hypnosis, the CEO of Hypnosis, claiming he's here to deal those injustices of the record uh, publishing uh, past, the injustices of the record business in the past, by offering songwriters a square deal, cash on the barrel head with no strings attached. And he says, I think publishing is a broken model. And quite frankly, I should say I want to obliterate it. I don't want it to exist anymore. So... Are there no strings attached in the hypnosis deal? And in your estimation, is that an accurate statement that publishing is just a broken model and it needs to be changed? Uh, I, absolutely, it's a broken model and it it, it needs to be changed. Um, in terms of the strings attached to the hypnosis deal, it's a very interesting question. And obviously, the the, the details of these agreements are not are not made public, but it's a big um, a major aspect of Hypnosis's USP is that they promise to be kind of quote unquote responsible stewards uh, of, uh, uh, of, of of this music, and that's why uh, selling out to them is preferable to selling out to someone like uh, Universal, for instance, uh, uh, because they you know they they claim to understand artists, and, and you know therefore I presume to look for more of a um, sort of uh, brand appropriate um, syncs for their music. Uh, I don't think that's a claim that we should take at all seriously. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the the, the entire uh, uh, rationale of this proposition is that you've made the uh, you know the you've made the music subservient to the financial imperative to 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 raise the value of the asset. Uh, so to you know to claim that you know some sort of that their artistic scruples will um, uh, will will. will make them responsible stewards of the song in that context is, uh, you know, I, I just think there's an old war. Um, in terms of uh, the uh, p- publishing as a model, um, the UK government has uh, been running some uh, sort, of, uh, sort of big consultation about the future of the, um, uh, the music economy over the last few months. And, uh, uh, hypnosis actually made uh, some uh, kind of representations to them about uh, you know what they thought um, uh, what they thought should be done and uh, they're very interesting actually and uh, and I, I think it it shed some light on what their strategy is that I, I didn't I didn't kind of manage to cover in my article um, and they make a hypnosis actually make a series of, uh, of of arguments which are kind of in line with what some of um, the uh, the kind of campaign groups that have been advocating on behalf of musicians are asking for. Um, so kind of uh, reforms which would uh, increase the percentage that's paid out to, to, to musicians from music streams and, and, and stuff like that. Um, obviously, um, uh, any increase in that percentage to songwriters would, would benefit hypnosis because, you know, they own the, um, the, the, the songwriting uh, credits to all this music. Um, so, their their sort of strategy, if you like, is to has been to try and acquire enough sort of market power that um, that they can start putting their weight about and trying to um, uh, kind of uh, lean on on other actors in the industry and on regulators to 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 sort of change the system in a way that suits them, whilst also claiming that the the kind of um, the value of that will trickle down. Uh, uh, you know, even to, um, to to kind of other songwriters, um, uh, and it, and it, and it's true that it, you know if if the the percentage uh, paid out to, to songwriters goes up, then then everybody benefits. But uh, again, I think we have to be really sceptical of um, an investment fund uh, claiming that it, it can be a kind of. Uh, uh, a representative body or a sort of lobbyist on on the part of um, uh, of the musicians and, and workers when you know their their ultimate interest 
at the end of the day is the same as as the big record companies, which is to uh, support the creation of a music economy where the same old IP is just recycled ad infinitum, and we're we're all just listening to the music that's um, that's being uh, kind of funneled towards us by by advertisers and streaming platforms. And you point out how hypnosis, they see themselves as disruptive revolutionaries. And you ask, what exactly is so revolutionary about shoveling mountains of cash into the laps of millionaires, many of, the, many of whom released their best stuff more than 40 years ago? So this is what disruption so often is, a business model that is sold successfully to the media as revolutionary and ending old broken models. Is disruption revolutionary? And if this disruption is not revolutionary, what would you call this disruption? Um, I think I've been sort of uh, kind of turning this question over over in my head a bit actually, and I, I was I was thinking of it as a time for a time between as a sort of um, a kind of conflict between two forms of capital. Um, so you know the sort of uh, the kind of incumbent uh, record companies standing for the old sort of uh, uh, you know the old style kind of 20th century manufacturing capital versus hypnosis who are the uh, um, uh, you know the sort of uh, the kind of new school uh, uh, sort of speculative financial capital but I don't think even that's not quite correct um, because uh, you know the, the record companies are all already up to their necks in financialization and speculation anyway it's just that um, hypnosis has, has been kind of uh, quick off the mark and sort of agile enough to realize that there's this, you know, there's this window of opportunity to make money off, um, uh, off, uh, music publishing rights. Um, and the thing, but the thing is we've, we've, what we've seen over the last kind of couple of months is, is the, the big players really starting to catch up. So you had the, you know, the Bob Dylan deal, which, um, Universal actually outbid Hypnosis. Uh, you know, Hypnosis wanted the Bob Dylan catalogue and, and Universal came and blew them out of the water. Um, and uh, just last week, uh, you saw the um, uh, Paul Simon uh, selling out to uh, uh, Sony. So, you know, I think this shows that the uh, the kind of um, the, the conventional big players in the music industry, are, are you know, they're, they're hit to this strategy and they're, they're, they're on board. So... Um, uh, you know what what hypnosis has been able to do is sort of pioneer this new strategy to music financialization and get in early enough to uh, to to maybe you know consolidate their niche but uh you know it seems now that really um you know not, i mean not just the big record companies but also you know kind of uh, uh um institutional investors on wall street like uh KKR have, have caught up as well. So it's, you know, this, this quote unquote disruption is just going to be reabsorbed into the, um, the kind of existing structure of, of, of the music marketplace. Um, and, and I just think, I think the final, the, the kind of final sort of uh, nail in the coffin for their, for hypnosis claims to be sort of disruptors is that, you know, they have, they advocate for music rights holders uh, not music workers. Um, so, uh, you know, it's not just that the artists who benefit the most will be the ones who are already, you know, kind of relatively well served by the existing systems, you know, the ones who, who already have uh, rights to songs which are incredibly valuable. But it also means that, like, there's a, you know, there are, there's a whole class of, of music workers who, who aren't a part of this right system, who, who are not being... Uh, are not being kind of um, served by this uh, revolution at all. So, um, you know, I, yeah, as I say, I just, yeah, any claim that they have to to be um, kind of uh, uh, looking out for um, the well-being of um, music or, or musicians generally is, is just not to be credited. We are speaking with writer Rich Woodall, who posted the Baffler article, Mass Hypnosis, A New Crop of Investors. We'd like you to keep Vanilla Ice on infinite repeat. You can follow Rich on Twitter at Rich Woodall underscore. And again, thanks to listener Sebastian for suggesting Rich and his article be featured on our show. You write, if hypnosis had their way, the history of music would have ended somewhere between the death of Napster and the Spotify IPO. And in fact, 
Who's to say that it didn't? This was the position of the late critic and theorist Mark Fisher, who pinpointed the year 2005, the release of the fifth-generation 60-gigabyte iPod, as the moment we slipped over the cultural event horizon. Popular music in the 21st century, he argued, has lost its ability to break with its own past. So an event horizon is the limits of a black hole, which is something from which nothing can escape. Can music escape the hypnosis paradigm? Is it already too late as the power of Wall Street is behind it? Um, well, yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm sort of uh, constitutionally a bit more optimistic than Mark Fisher. I, I you know, first of all, I, I believe that um, uh, the, the, the kind of the, the urge to, to create um, is, is very resilient, um, you know, no matter how kind of terrible the circumstances are, um, uh, uh, you know, people will find a way to, to, um, uh, to create, you know, uh, uh, music that is, that, that is new and that's and challenging and, and exciting. Um, and, uh, I also believe in the kind of, uh, you know the, the the sort of perversity of um of desire like uh it's not i don't think it's as easy as as these companies would would like us to believe to to kind of control and manage uh the uh the way that um uh kind of quote-unquote consumers desire uh expresses itself so you know i i think you know i think hypnosis will probably be quite disappointed to discover that that they're, you know, that the bets they've made on people continuing to to like the music that they've um, uh, that they've invested all this money in, in you know, sort of 10, 20 years time. You know, I, my 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 guess is that you know those those bets aren't going to work out like they thought they would. Um, but I, you know, we don't, uh, you know, I don't think we should spend too much time consoling ourselves with with those sorts of kind of abstractions. You know, I, I think, you know, this really is the moment to, um, you know, for, for people to start uh, kind of collectively imagining what uh, uh, different models for um, uh, kind of creating and sharing and, and creating and sharing music and, and, and supporting and nurturing the, the, the people who produce that music um, uh, would look like, you know, the, the you know, by all accounts, the, the last year has been... Um, uh, you know, just uh, uh, catastrophic for, uh, for for musicians everywhere. Um, uh, you know, with the, the loss of uh, revenue from uh, from touring, for instance. Um, so, you know, it's a real, you know, there's a real urgency um, to now to trying to uh, uh, imagine a, a different way of kind of supporting this kind of activity. When it comes to imagining a different activity, you know, there's the famous quote of Frederick uh, Jameson, which is, it's easier to imagine an end to the world than an end to capitalism. Do you think that this is another example of that? Does neoliberalism, when applied here with hypnosis, cause us to have that belief that it is easier to manage, imagine an end of the world than an end to capitalism? Um, well, that, I mean, that's very much what they're trading on. You know, I, I think one of the things that I tried to articulate in the piece is, is how, uh, you know, they're uh, in, a, in a quite material way, their their profit model uh, is 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 based on on the belief that our you know our culture is kind of completely exhausted um, and and kind of isn't isn't capable of of uh, kind of expressing futurity either in terms of like. Uh, kind of new content you know so sort of you know art forms which which uh kind of imagine different forms of futurity or or kind of new forms um new styles um you know that's that's their, their bet is that you know uh is that this thing is played out and and that uh you know we won't be able to do any better than to to, to just uh, uh, kind of uh, recycle the, the hits of the last 50 years. Um, I don't, I don't agree with that. I, you know, I think that, 
I, but I, you know, I think the, the 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 project that is in front of us now is is how to um, you know, is how to kind of organise to uh, to support the, um, the the creation of um, uh, the the kind of the sort of new artworks that are gonna um, that are gonna sort of uh, sustain us in 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 the, the future we're heading into. Um, and uh, you know, I, I take um, you know, I take I take hope from from uh, organisations like the the Music Workers Alliance and the the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, um, uh, you know, who have been uh, 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 kind of organising uh, recently to uh, demand better uh, uh, conditions for musicians from from organisations like like Spotify, uh, and uh, you know, I think that I think organisations like this are the are the basis for the the kind of broader movement that we're, we're going to need, which will be uh, kind of both. Uh, kind of musicians, music workers, and and fans um, uh, coming together around the idea that um, uh, music is a uh, is an intrinsic good, um, and it's you know, it's something that we all need, um, uh, and and you know therefore we need to uh, find ways to kind of guarantee access to it whilst also um, you know, taking care of the people who make it for us. And I couldn't help but think, Rich, while I was reading your piece, if if this whole urge you often hear it mostly in the media. I don't hear my I don't hear friends using this phrase that often, but this whole urge to return to normal. I kept thinking about this returning to normal is kind of giving up on the future. So, is returning to normal a function of that recycling of the past? Is is a constant focus on nostalgia? A surrendering of our future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think. Um, I mean, in with you know, in 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 the field of music. Yeah, you know, I always sort of grew up with the uh, um, the expectation that. Um, you know, we'd always be sort of, uh, you know, the kind of history of music would always be sort of moves, moving forward. Um, uh, uh, you know, that the point was to, uh, um, uh, you know, be constantly kind of creating and, and sort of discovering uh, uh, new sounds and and, uh, uh, and and new musical styles. And, um, You know, I sometimes wonder if, if you know, my my generation. You know, I'm in my early thirties. I sometimes wonder if my generation was the the the, the last uh, one of the last generations that could sort of uh, uh, you know live with that uh, delusion because um, you know since you know it really does feel like we've ended up in this kind of cultural flatland um, uh, uh, where uh, you know it's just the same old stuff kind of circling the drain in perpetuity. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, I think it, it, unless we can recover that sort of uh, um, that kind of uh, kind of modernist belief in the uh, uh, in in, um, uh, in newness as a uh, as a value in the the music that we enjoy, um, uh, it's uh, it has yeah, it will have a deleterious effect on our ability to kind of. Um, conceptualize the future per se, I think. And you also mentioned how a platform like Spotify offers the illusion of limitless choice, whilst actually delivering an experience that is, as Baffler columnist Liz Pelly wrote, tightly controlled and dictated by the interests of major labels, brands, and other cash-rich businesses who have gamed the system. Then you add automated recommendations and corporate synergy, ease listeners into a passive relationship with whatever chill background noise the platform has summoned for them. Under these circumstances, there are plenty of opportunities for a company like Hypnosis to ensure its properties reach the right set of ears. So do we have more control over our devices or do our devices have more control over us? And in this case, our musical tastes and choices, are, are we you know, knowingly and will, willfully giving up control over our musical tastes? 
Uh, it's difficult to say. Like, I think that that question of um, uh, of of what um, kind of uh, uh, volition, uh, what sort of individual volition means in the context of these platforms is very complicated because they're you know they're designed uh, uh, you know from top to bottom to try and uh, uh, give us the illusion of choice whilst in fact you know taking it away um, uh, you know the is so sort of um, uh, is sort of insinuated itself into this kind of like um, ideal typical uh, daily routine um, uh, so you know the playlists that are designed for like you know morning workout and, and uh, 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 study and then you know the chill relaxing and, and, and stuff like that um, you know they're it, it, it's calculated to uh, uh, sort of take advantage of our um, the sort of distracted exhausted state that we find ourselves in um, you know anyway because of uh, what it's like to live under late capitalism um, uh, that it, yeah you know they it, it, it attacks us in our, our kind of weakest points in that sense um, so I, I suppose one way of looking at it is, is as a, a design question you know how, how could we design uh, uh, you know, ways of, of accessing music that um, make uh, um, a choice easier to, you know, and, and discovery easier for, for people to exercise. Um, you know, and it's one of the most obvious things about Spotify is how, uh, how hard it is to actually find anything on that platform. You know, if you're, uh, if you're sort of uh, going out with the desire to discover something new for yourself, um, kind of under your own under your own volition. Uh, that's you know, it, Spotify makes that incredibly difficult. Uh, but it will you know just fire this uh, just uh, uh, avalanche of um, of uh, you know stuff that uh, record companies and brands have paid it to uh, to to send to you. Um, so uh, so yeah, you know how how could we create ways of listening to music which uh, uh, kind of uh, you know, flip that model on its head. You mentioned the impact of the pandemic on hypnosis, and you're right. Worried that the downstream effects of hundreds of thousands of preventable deaths might take a bite out of your stock portfolio? Fear not. Great songs are always being consumed. Looking for somewhere safe to park your dollars during the incineration of the biosphere? Oceans may boil and deserts may freeze, but nevertheless, great songs are always being consumed. And that is just a frightening, frightening thought from the people at Hypnosis. So does a profitable business during a crisis like Hypnosis profited do you think that that contributes in any way to that crisis does hypnosis contribute to the crisis of the pandemic by profiting off of it i mean they certainly um i certainly think that the uh the, the pandemic has um presented an opportunity to them which they've uh they've been very uh uh, quick in in, in seizing. Uh, I think it's I, I, it's my suspicion that it, it it's actually kind of accelerated their, their plan. You know they've been on this kind of incredible buying spree, and uh, you know I, I think they they saw you know number one the uh, the, the damage that um, that this, the pandemic would do to the music industry, and and, and so the, the kind of opportunity that would present for them to sort of. Uh, you know, maybe negotiate a bit more favourably with with some of the owners of the catalogs that they were buying, um, and then obviously the um, the kind of uh, the sort of mass <laughs> psychological effect of the pandemic, which you know this is still this is still very speculative, but uh, to some degree, I think we have to be a little bit sceptical about the figures that are released by, by by big platforms and stuff when they tell us, you know. Uh, how many you know billion streams don't stop believing Scott? But you know, I think the the notion that um, the notion that that people have been uh, you know kind of driven towards 
uh, particular kinds of music, which uh, kind of gives them solace in this time, uh, which, you know, it feels very intuitive, doesn't it? You know, I think we can probably all, we probably, something we've probably all done at some point over the last uh, 12 months or, or so is, you know, to kind of, you know, turn to particular songs that, that, have, that, that provide kind of uh, comfort because of the sort of past associations. But the, yeah, the thought that they've, uh, you know, they've been able to turn that uh, into a uh, into a revenue stream is um, uh, is uh, is horrifying, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. We have been speaking with writer Rich Woodall, who posted the Baffler article, Mass Hypnosis, A New Crop of Investors Would Like You to Keep Vanilla Ice on Infinite Repeat. Follow Rich on Twitter at RichWoodall underscore. And again, thanks to listener Sebastian for turning us on to Rich's work. One last question for you, Rich. And as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. You quote... Mercuriatus of uh, hypnosis explaining today 90% of the artists that are being signed are really talented people, but ultimately the end game is fame. And whether that fame comes from singing someone else's song or singing a co-written song or whether it comes from social media, if you're Zara Larson and you have access to hit songs, you're top of the charts. If you're Iggy Azalea and five years ago you had the biggest song in the world with a song called Fancy, but for no, for whatever reason you no longer have access to hit songs, you're nowhere. In your opinion, how might believing music is about nothing but attaining fame affect the music you determine to make a success? I mean, I, I don't know how much I really believe that. I, I think I, 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 so I think that's a kind of cynical uh, um, uh, kind of worldview that Merck is kind of uh, projecting onto people because it, uh, because it sort of suits his narrative. Um, I mean, I suppose he probably he spent more time around famous musicians than I have, so I suppose he probably knows them better than I do. But I, uh, you know, I. I yeah, I'd like to think that. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe not Iggy Azalea, but but, but most musicians are, are motivated by uh, by more than fame. At least until people like Mercuriadis get their hands on. Rich, I really appreciate you being on the show with us. Starting off our week, uh, writer Rich Woodall posted the Baffler article, Mass Hypnosis, a new crop of investors would like you to keep Vanilla Ice on infinite repeat. Again, thanks to Sebastian for suggesting Rich, and you can follow Rich on Twitter, at Rich Woodall underscore. Thanks so much for being on our show today. Thanks for having me. It's been, it's been fun. All right. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell, and Jess, I'm going to guess that was also live from Rich's bathroom in London. Don't you agree with the acoustics there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did you hear the knock on the door, too? I did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Somebody else needed to use the bathroom, apparently. And he at least has at least one dog living with him. Oh, uh, you learned so much about our guests. Jess, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell, and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? And Daphne M. says $1,400, allegedly. (laughs) (laughs) Allegedly? I still haven't seen mine. Have you? Yeah, yeah, I've got mine. (laughs) What the hell, man? Yeah, they've been very prompt for me. I don't know. I like that one. Um, (laughs) William C., a headache. Lisa B., complimentary all-you-can-eat at Old Country Buffet. Micah D., what a crazy coincidence. I hope that's all it is. I got a message yesterday to get a book club back together that hasn't met in at least 10 years to read, of all things, Thomas Mann's Dr. Faustus. (laughs) That's weird. (laughs) Kevin Z, not nearly enough. (laughs) What are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? Krimsky K, uh, after this is hell comes the real deal, so I get that to look forward to. (laughs) Clay G, suffering. (laughs) Greg V, free Amazon Prime. Don S, solipsism. John K, this is hell, so nothing. Uh, Christopher W, a case of beer and a pack of smokes. <laughs> what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? He's not a very good bargainer, is he? No, no, it's not much. <laughs> a lot of these people are not <laughs> doing a great job yeah. of bargaining. Yeah. Uh, Bernard W, diddly squat. Uh, Josh W, 
Timothy Faust being interviewed on This Is Health. This is also a request to have healthcare advocate Timothy Faust on This Is Health. He'd be a great fit. And check out his book, Health Justice Now. Um, what are you getting out of your Faustian bargain? Uh, Alexandra C., more wishes. And last... Bradley R, a fiddle made of gold. Tragically, I traded it for a VIP ticket to the MLB All-Star game the day before it got moved. Damn you, Mephistopheles. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. That's currently available at our website, thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page. Tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we have to have it by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. And man, am I hoping it's not as rotten as last week's rotten history because that whole thing about the singing nun and oh my God, that was horrible. <sighs> In Rotten History, April 5th, 1943, 78 years ago today, Monday, amid the fog of the Second World War. Oh, this is not going to get better. The 303rd Bomber Group of the U.S. Army Air Force mounted a daylight bombing raid in the fog over Belgium near the city of Antwerp. Their target was a Belgian car factory taken over by Nazi occupiers, which was being used by the German Luftwaffe to repair and maintain their aircraft. The U.S. planes dropped more than a hundred half-ton bombs on the buildings below. Unfortunately, only two of the bombs actually hit the factory. So hundreds of bombs dropped, but only two hit their target. It's as if back in the good old days, nobody really cared about indiscriminate warfare. The rest of the explosives fell in the nearby residential suburb of Marcel, where uh, civilians were going about their daily business while... There was little warning of any bombing raid. Within just eight minutes, more than 900 Belgian non-combatants were dead, including some 200 children killed when the bombs hit their schools. Another 1,300 people in Marcel were injured for Belgium. The civilian death toll was the highest of any single incident in World War II, more than double that of the infamous bombing of Guernica six years earlier during the Spanish Civil War. To repeat, including the invasion and occupation of Belgium, by the Nazis, the highest death toll of any single incident in Belgium during World War II was committed by the United States, which missed its target and killed nearly a thousand, including hundreds of children. It's the kind of rotten history they don't mention on the History Channel or in history books in U.S. schools. And in rotten history on April 6th, 1857, 164 years ago tomorrow, Tuesday, a convicted murderer and thief named, Mar Fr named Francis Richoux was put under the guillotine and executed before a crowd of more than 12,000 people in Paris. Keep in mind, this is before cable, so, you know, cut him some slack. Among the spectators was a 28-year-old Russian nobleman who had recently arrived in the French capital after serving as a second lieutenant in an artillery regiment in the Crimean War. His name was Leo Tolstoy. On a tour of Europe, the future author of War and Peace and Anna Karenina, was getting his first look at Paris, and nothing says 19th century Paris in spring like an execution attended by thousands. Until now, Tolstoy had been fascinated and enchanted by everything he saw in Paris, and having heard in advance about the public execution, he'd been driven by curiosity to rise early and get there on time, because executions are not the kind of thing you want to be late to. It's, it's all about the pregame. But what Tolstoy saw disgusted him so much that he couldn't sleep that night, and it motivated him to get the hell out of Paris as soon as he could. And I would also suggest that Tolstoy leave the 19th century altogether. In a letter to a friend, Tolstoy beat himself up for being, quote, stupid and callous enough to witness the beheading. He wrote, quote, I have seen many horrors in war, but if a man were torn to pieces in my presence, it would not have been as repulsive as this ingenious and elegant machine by means of which they killed a strong, healthy man in an instant. A question of calm and convenient murder finally worked out. The truth is that the state is a conspiracy not only for exploitation, but chiefly to corrupt its citizens. From this day forward, not only will I never go to see a thing again, but I will never serve any government anywhere. Unquote. Tolstoy eventually worked out a distinctive form of radical religious anarchism that he embraced for the rest of his life. That anarchism is also known as Christian anarchism, 
that believes anarchism is inherent in Christianity and the Gospels. Tolstoy's The Kingdom of God is Within You, often cited as the most important text in Christian anarchism, was published in Germany in 1894 as the writing was banned in Russia. And yes, there is an audio version of that book online if you're interested in that kind of thing. That's rotten history, but not as rotten as last week's nightmare about the singing nun. And this is Hell. Jess, please tell us who is on tomorrow's Tuesday show, also beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. On tomorrow's show, we're talking to Anna Art Yushina on her MIT Technology Review article, The EU is Launching a Market for Personal Data. Here's what that means for privacy. By the way, MIT Technology Review, isn't that like ATM machine? I mean, is, shouldn't it just be the MIT Review? It's the Massachusetts <laughs> Institute of Technology Technology Review? Yeah, I, I didn't pick that up. Uh, what the hell? I just noticed that. <laughs> what about on Wednesday's show? On Wednesday, we're talking to uh, Luis Chavez on his prep dispatch. Scientists say land use drives new pandemics. But what if land isn't what they think it is? Yeah, we'll find out what it is on Wednesday, and then we don't know what's happening on Thursday, right? We do not know. We're still working on it. But Jeff is going to be back. Jeff Dorchin will return with the moment of truth. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show. It's Monday, so it's Jess Lipka. Thanks to Jess for producing. Thanks to Rich Woodall for being our guest. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing booking today's guest. And thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. And this week's hangover cure again is meat. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>